Well, welcome. I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you guys are all joining us this morning as we worship God and read God's Word together. Let me bring us up uh, to speed a little bit in case you've missed a couple Sundays or if you're just joining us for the first time, we're glad you're here. We've been going through the book of Matthew. And by chapter 9 in Matthew, uh, Jesus' ministry is in full swing. So he's preaching, uh, he's teaching, he's healing, and hundreds, thousands of people are, are beginning to flock to him, and they're starting to follow him around. And at the end of chapter 9, Jesus looks out at this crowd of people, people who are broken, people who are in need of healing, both physically and spiritually, and he has compassion for them. He's overwhelmed by this compassion. He looks at them with a, with a tender heart, at all of humanity, and, and says effectively, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. It says the harvest is plentiful, chapter 9, verse 37, but the laborers are few. And so Jesus directs his disciples to pray for more laborers to enter into the harvest. And then in the beginning of chapter 10, he sends those disciples to be an answer to their own prayer, to be the laborers of that harvest. And that's where we're at in chapter 10. Jesus' disciples are given authority by him to do what he's been doing, to preach and to teach and to heal. And let's be clear about something. This is a monumental moment in the history of the church. This is the, the first historic missionary sending of God's people. And I don't think it was something that was actually expected. So as we see Jesus being this promised king, who's been prophesied to be good news and, 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 and a great joy for all of the people. That's in Luke chapter 2. Uh, the man who will save his people from their sins in Matthew one twenty one. When you hear that, I don't think the people of God realize just how hands-on and participatory God's mission would actually be. So the Super Bowl's coming up. I've been told to not use football analogies because apparently our church couldn't care less about football. But... Imagine for a minute that you are a huge fan of any sport, and you have a chance to go see your favorite team win the biggest game, and you're sitting there in the stands, and all of a sudden the coach looks back at you and is like, hey, the laborers are few. We need more people. Suit up. Let's go. Like, that would be a little ridiculous. No one attending a sporting event is expecting to play. You're there to see how the professionals actually do it. But that's not how Jesus' ministry is going to look. Now, to be very clear, Jesus is the team captain, right? He's the coach. He's the owner. He's the GM. He's the star player. He's going to score the game-winning points. And it will be definitively clear that the victory is entirely a result of Jesus. But Christianity is not a spectator sport. The disciples are not going to be allowed to stay on the bench and just watch Jesus work, and they're going to learn this pretty fast. Jesus sends them out in chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. He says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Now talk about a pregame warm-up speech. Can you imagine how fired up the disciples might have felt? Like, yeah, let's go. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to heal the sick. Maybe they're throwing high fives at each other. We're going to cleanse lepers. We're going to cast out demons. Like, Jesus, what, what, what else you got for us? Come on, keep pumping us up. And then verse 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What was that, Jesus? Do you mean you're sending us out as wolves 
to defeat the enemy and for ferociously command and conquer and, and defeat them who are, are dumb as sheep? Like, we're the wolves? He's like, no, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is not an underdog story that Jesus is setting his disciples up for. This is Jesus using an illustration to communicate the frailty of the disciples and the ferocity of the opposition they're about to face. This is not what we'd expect Jesus to say. It's certainly not what the disciples wanted to hear as they're about to embark on this mission, but it will help them and us understand the cost of what it means to be on mission with Jesus. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, soft hearts to be able to receive, ears to be able to hear your word this morning. Lord, help me communicate your words in a clear way to your people. Lord, we pray that you would transform our hearts, that you would do the work that only you can do. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The disciples are sent out on a mission to preach the gospel. As you keep on reading Matthew, uh, they're going to be continually sent out on this mission. And then Jesus' final words in Matthew 28, at the very end of the book of Matthew, they are told in Jesus' final words to continue going on this mission to the ends of the earth. And so the question is, are, are all Christians responsible for sharing the gospel with the people around them? Are we all, as Christians in this space, are we each individually responsible for being on mission to preach the gospel, or is it just some of us? In 1993, the Barna Group, they're a group who collects data about faith and culture in America, they began a study to answer and to track this question over time. And when they began the study in 1993, almost 90% of Americans who were asked if they believed that every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith, they agreed. 90% of American Christians said that, yes, every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. So that was 90% in 1993. 25 years later, in 2018, the same question, it was less than 65% of Americans who believe that it's the responsibility of every Christian to share their faith. That's a big drop. In that same amount of time, what has increased is this belief that, quote, converting people to Christianity is the job of the church and not the individuals in the church. So that went from 10% of people believing that in 1993 to one-third of Christians in America who answered this poll in 2018. These are Christians who are being asked these questions. Now, I, I don't know where we stand five years later from that point, but if these numbers represent a trend, and if what I observe as a pastor is that all accurate, then we today tend towards struggling with evangelism. Not all of us, but generally, we're trending towards spectating as opposed to engaging in the mission that God has given us as his people. It isn't the responsibility we've all owned, even though we probably know that we should do it. Why is that? Why is that? I want us to keep this in mind as we study the text this morning, because I think Jesus' first commissioning of his disciples to preach and to teach this gospel addresses a lot of reasons why we might find it hard to be on mission today. Look again at verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Sheep are simple creatures. They rarely survive by themselves in the wild. It's because they have a lot of predators and almost no defensive capabilities. So their defensive capabilities include scurrying away relatively slowly if they have a full flock of wool. I don't know what you call that. If they're all loaded up with their wool. And they can headbutt, but they don't have horns and their skulls are pretty fragile. So even then, they're not very defensive. And it's not like Jesus knows something about sheep. Like, like maybe they have a special skill or a special power that makes them and all of the other animals in the animal kingdom overlook them. They're actually really formidable. No. We know exactly how Jesus feels about them. Earlier in chapter 9, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So when you are struggling, when you have nothing to offer, when you are harassed and helpless, the animal that Jesus likens you to is a little sheep, is a sheep. But Jesus particularly likes this metaphor because he uses it again right here. The same harassed and helpless sheep are being sent out, but this time there's a shepherd. The difference between a flock with no shepherd and a flock with a shepherd is that one dies and the other one will thrive. Now, at face value, this is not the most encouraging metaphor. Jesus is saying it's going to be scary for them. There will be emotional and physical challenges up ahead. It'll be dangerous, and they're going to get banged up. And so if you feel overwhelmed while you are evangelizing and sharing the gospel, it's because in some cases it is overwhelming. The metaphor that Jesus uses for the disciples on their first mission is that it will feel like being defenseless prey in the midst of numerous predators. And yes, Alden alluded to this last week. This is a specific word to the apostles at a very specific time in history, in the history of the church. But it sets the bar for what to expect while evangelizing. And I don't think on a broad level this has been reversed any time since then. If you feel overwhelmed, if you feel vulnerable as you seek to be on mission to tell your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors about Jesus, if it doesn't go smoothly, if it doesn't feel effective, nothing is broken. It doesn't mean that you're, you're particularly bad at it. It definitely doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. According to Jesus, this is the way, in some instances, that sharing the gospel will feel sometimes, like being a sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, the picture that Jesus gives his disciples is humbling. humbling. It's sobering, which we need to remember today. But they are still called to go, as we are today. And as a good coach, as an excellent shepherd, Jesus prepares his sheep. In light of this reality and this nature of their mission, this is how disciples are commanded to conduct themselves. He says to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. A little bit of cultural context informs us that snakes are understood as very clever little creatures. They lay snares and traps for their prey. Even biblical context aligns with this. Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. They have to be crafty. They don't have hands. They don't have any appendages at all. They just slither around on their bellies. Yet, they are among the most effective predators in all of creation. 
And the disciples are like sheep amidst wolves, but they're not called to be dumb sheep. They're commanded to be wise and sharp like a serpent, to be discerning, to be shrewd. Now, don't mistake these adjectives and these qualities as being ungodly. Yes, Satan is crafty. He is clever, but he's also full of malice. His intent is to destroy and to devour, and so his shrewdness manifests itself as deception. He is the deceiver. He is a liar. But look at what Jesus says. Chapter 10, verse 16. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Doves are pure. Another translation for that word innocent here is to be unmixed with evil, to be sincere, to have no deceit, to be blameless. So what does it look like to be crafty and clever and discerning while also being pure and innocent? It looks a lot like what Jesus is coaching his disciples to be. It looks like a Christian, apparently. One way to understand this is that we as Christians are called to put forth a full mental effort forward in a holy way for the good of those that we're trying to reach with the gospel, to use our God-given smart brains. Yes, we all have different capacities, but we all have brains that can think. God has given us smart brains and he's given us compassionate hearts and we use both of these for the good of others. It looks like being discerning like Jesus was being discerning when he was interacting with the woman on the well at the well in John 4. It looks like leveraging our professional position and our influence like Nehemiah did to benefit his people. Or maybe saving the lives of babies like the Jewish midwives did in Exodus 1. Or protecting the spies like Rahab did in Joshua 2. It looks like us today being shrewd and crafty to strategically leverage our minds, our time, our resources, our entire lives to bring the message of Jesus to those who are around us. And yeah, it might feel like being a sheep amidst wolves when we are on this mission of Jesus, but God did not make us to be dumb sheep. He made us in his image to be shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves. Some of us need to hear, hear this this morning. And I pray that we would be released to do this. So be crafty, be sneaky for Jesus, for his glory and for the good of others. It's not bad to be sneaky. I wrap my presents not in the presence of my daughters. That's a little sneaky, but it's for their good. Jesus' preparation of his disciples for the mission of evangelism is not just metaphorical. Look at verse 17. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus is telling his disciples to be aware of, to watch out for, not, not to be afraid of. I think a lot of times when you use the word beware today, it is often connected with a sense of fear and dread, but that's not how Jesus is using it. He's telling them to be watchful, to be on guard. For what? For people who will deliver them over to be tried and punished for carrying the message of Jesus. People who will persecute them for their faith. 
Now, there are a couple of layers to this. First, this is more of a broad prophetic word from Jesus of what they will experience later on as they continue on this mission. This isn't a one-and-done mission. This is what they're going to spend the rest of their lives doing. On on this first missionary send-out, they won't experience all of this exactly like this. And we'll see how Jesus' words here are not just for this specific send-out, but for future experiences of evangelism. So that's one thing. Second, we again see this trajectory of Jesus' strategy of evangelism for his disciple. First, it is for God's people. So this is represented in the reference to the synagogues in verse 17, where the local Jewish communities of faith would admit kings in verse 18 to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And so Jesus, even in the first mission, has the nations in mind. Do you guys see that? Now here's what's interesting to me. Jesus says, beware of these men. But he also says in verse 19, when they deliver you over, which implies that it's going to happen. So being on guard doesn't mean that his disciples will be able to avoid this fate. Persecution for the disciples is not a matter of if, but a matter of when. But there is a comfort from Jesus in these verses. It is a massive encouragement. Look at verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus anticipates a source of anxiety for his disciples as they go on to share the gospel. When they're dragged before others and placed on trial to communicate and defend the message of Christ, what in the world are they going to say? When their back is up against the wall, when they're alone and vulnerable, when the person asking them questions is not being gracious or kind to them, I mean, many of us can relate to this exact fear today. And maybe we don't usually bring up Jesus because we're not sure how that conversation's going to go. We're not sure what we're going to say. We're afraid, maybe, to identify as Christian. Or maybe we're afraid to be overt about our faith because we're not sure how we're going to answer the questions or handle being ridiculed or mocked or ostracized. And if this is you, hear Jesus' comforting encouragement to his disciples in these verses. And look, it's not Jesus sitting them down and walking them through a pamphlet. He's not teaching them the Roman road. He's not giving them a little illustration that they can jot down on the back of a napkin to articulate the gospel. He doesn't give them a book on evangelism or give them facts or arguments to memorize. What does he say? Verse 19, do not be anxious for how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Look, if you struggle with evangelism, it's it's not because you don't know enough. We don't need to train. We actually need to trust in Jesus, our great shepherd, and his promise that through his Spirit, he will give us words. We don't primarily need more knowledge in order to do evangelism. We need more faith in God's promises that he'll supply our every need. Now, does this mean that we burn our books on evangelism? Or maybe we never use tracts or gospel illustrations on those napkins? Absolutely not. Be sharp and shrewd and wise as serpents. Equip yourselves as much as you can. 
but all of the training and evangelism that the whole world has to offer will ultimately be ineffective and useless without the blessing and help of our God. Why? Because only God can soften and transform the hearts of sinners. That is the goal of evangelism. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, 26. This should be on your screen. And I, this is God speaking, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Does that sound like something that we as humans can do to one another? The answer is no. Look, some of us, I think, struggle to do evangelism because we confuse the work of God with work that we need to do. Logical arguments do not transform hearts. Apologetics do not convert people. The disciples are asked simply to carry the message, to carry the word of God. That is the mission because Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You want to be better at evangelism? Read your Bibles and store up God's word in your hearts to be able to communicate to other people. The disciples are not defenseless sheep. They are when they're in their own power, if they go with their own words. And maybe that's how we view evangelism, which is most likely why we don't like doing it, or maybe maybe why we don't ever want to do it. But we are not sheep without a shepherd. We are not messengers with no words. And no matter what peculiar situation we might find ourselves in evangelizing, trying to share the gospel with others, God will not leave us or forsake us. He will give us words in those moments. My favorite New Testament example of this is in Acts chapter 2. The disciples receive the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, things are getting a little wild. The unbelieving crowds are mocking these Christians, and, and, and they're calling them drunk. And in chapter 2, verse 14, verse 14, it says, But Peter, now let me remind you about, about Peter, okay? When Peter opens his mouth, it is usually not for the better. Like, his track record isn't great. When Peter talks, he's either making a fool of himself or getting rebuked by Jesus, all right? He's hardly the all-star that you're going to put in the game at a crucial moment such as this. But he's up off the bench at this point. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Peter then proceeds to preach the first sermon ever by someone other than Jesus. And critically speaking, the sermon is not great, okay? Technically speaking, his references are a little bit all over the place. It's it's a little hard to follow along. And his main point is basically, you killed Jesus, the Messiah. And he makes that point and he sits down. He, He forgets to include like an application or a call to action. And someone from the crowd is like, what should we do then? He doesn't even give an application. It's not a shining example of a sermon that we use to train young preachers. But let me tell you, 
Peter didn't prepare for this. He didn't sit down and read a handful of commentaries and take time to ponder and meditate on the theological implications of the passage of Joel that he quoted. He didn't draft an outline. He didn't practice in the mirror. He stood up, he lifted his voice, and he addressed them. And at that moment, God gave him the words. God gave him the words. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. How did it result? So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Not bad. Who gets the glory? It's certainly not Peter. It wasn't his words that saved 3,000 souls. It was his obedience and faith in Jesus' mission and his promise and ultimately God's words, which he quoted and then took some time to explain which God used to bring about salvation in all those who heard that gospel message that day. Mercy House, it's okay to not know what to say when you're sharing the gospel. Sometimes we need to just have the faith to be able to stand up and to lift up our voice and let God do the rest. You have a testimony of how God has affected you. There are aspects of how excellent God is that you can communicate to other people. That's what evangelism is. Now, even with the right words, when Jesus' disciples are faithful and obedient to the mission, they will be ostracized and rejected. They will be maligned and beaten. But the dangers that will come when Jesus' disciples are on mission are, are not just social, they're not just superficial. Look at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is definitely speaking prophetically here beyond this missionary journey that he's preparing his disciples for. But he's speaking the truth because this does happen. All of his disciples will experience significant persecution as they live out this mission. Paul is beheaded in Rome. Andrew is crucified in what is modern-day Turkey. Peter is crucified in Rome upside down. Thomas is stabbed through by four soldiers with spears. Philip was martyred in North Africa. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was martyred somewhere in southern Arabia. James was clubbed to death in Syria. Simon the Zealot was killed in Persia after refusing to sacrifice to their sun god. Matthias, chosen to replace Judas, was burned to death. John was able to live to old age. But this was after he was boiled alive in a vat of oil by the Roman emperor Domitian, and he lived, and they didn't know what to do with him, so they just exiled him to an island called Patmos, and he lived out his days there, writing the book of Revelation. There is a cost to the mission, and the early disciples, our forefathers in the faith, they paid that cost, but Jesus also describes something that in some ways can be even more painful than death. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. The word deliver here is the same word that's used earlier in verse 4 up at the top of chapter 10 to describe Judas as the betrayer. Brother will betray brother over to death father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. 
And as if that isn't enough, verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Alden talked last week about the mission and the method and the consequences that we see in the first chapter, in the first part of chapter 10. And, and here's the consequence again. Jesus is teaching the disciples that this mission is serious. The gospel is not a self-help philosophy or a simple gesture of goodwill and love that's, that's something that's easily digestible, like the Valentine's Day card that we're going to be sending around in a couple of weeks. The gospel is not a pleasantry that we wish upon someone. When we share the gospel, it has the potential to either save their life or take our own. And in some cases, for faithful Christians who have carried out the mission of Jesus throughout all of history, it did both simultaneously. And this is because the gospel message is offensive. It is offensive. No one wants to hear, you are a wretched sinner deserving righteous judgment from a holy God. That is painful to hear. That is impossible to receive without some supernatural work of the Holy Spirit intervening in that moment. When the gospel is preached, it's no wonder the response is often like that of ravenous wolves. This is not for the disciples just on a professional, broad cultural level. Jesus is warning his disciples that the gospel in its offensiveness will divide families. The closest human connections we have, the fiercest relationships of loyalty will be brutally broken and divided over this. Some of us know this all too well. Some of us have lost friends and family over the gospel. We've offended brothers. We have sisters who are avoiding us. We've had parents that have disowned us. We have families that have excommunicated us. And we're left to wonder, what have I done? But surely this isn't what Jesus wanted when he told me to share the gospel with my family. And yet, here it is in God's word. We're going to be spending more time on this next week. But if you are someone who's sitting here this morning, you've done your best to preach the gospel to your family and friends, and all you have to show for it are broken relationships. I just want to encourage you. It does not mean that you've done something wrong, brothers and sisters. Now, if you've been mean and vicious, you've had malice in your heart, then you need to humble yourself and apologize for that. But if you were wise as a serpent, if you were innocent as a dove, broken relationships are sometimes the cost of the mission. We need to understand the cost, just like the disciples did, in order to be on this mission, to preach the gospel. But a great question is, if that's the cost, why on earth would we go? If that is what is at stake, let's look at these final verses and see, verses and see why Christians ought to be compelled to go out as sheep amongst wolves. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but... The one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is not saying that those who obey the command to go and who participate in evangelism and the preaching and the teaching of the gospel are going to be saved for their efforts 
or that we earn salvation through evangelism. We know that that's not how this works. We know that salvation is through faith, not works. It is a gift that's given to us by grace and not something that we earn. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 are a couple of places you can look. But obedience to God's word is evidence of genuine, saving faith. So those who endure in evangelism, who pay the cost of sharing the gospel with those around them, will demonstrate by that obedience to God's command that they actually are in fact saved. Remember the passage from earlier in Ezekiel, chapter, or chapter 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will, remove, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. By God's grace, when we endure to the end, being caused by God to walk in that obedience, then our complete salvation will be realized on that last day. So why should we be willing to pay this cost and evangelize the nations? First and foremost, because Jesus commands us to do it. And that should be enough. If we, are profess if we are professing faith in Jesus and saying that God is our God, then we must obey God and walk in his ways. So where does God command us to make disciples? Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is his command and this is his way. This is not optional. This is not Christian extra credit. And contrary to the bad theology of a significant portion of the American church, this is not the task of the church organization. This is the responsibility of each and every member, the body of Christ. Christians preach the gospel. Christians, Christians. Therefore, the reason why we ought to carry this responsibility of sharing the gospel at any and all costs is because we are Christian. Because we are Christian. Because we are disciples of Jesus. It is what we do. And we do it with perseverance and with persistence. Let's read these last verses and finish for the day. Verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servants like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus directs, them on this mission and to do so with endurance and with persistence he's telling his disciples when the going gets tough when you face persecution move on to the next place don't be a needless martyr as one commentator put it if they're not receiving you if they're persecuting you be wise as a serpent and move on to the next town now the second half of verse 23 however is the source of a lot of confusion so there really is not a whole lot of consensus on what Jesus means when he says that they, will not, that they won't 
go through all the towns of Israel, quote, before the Son of Man comes. So what does that phrase mean? Some think that this could be referencing to Jesus' second coming. So we're thinking on an eschatological level here. Other people think that he's talking about when Jesus delivers him, himself up to the Father and kind of completes his earthly mission with his crucifixion. Others think that he's referencing his resurrection, at which point he will come and commission them again, which is what we read earlier in Matthew 28. I, I lean toward this interpretation, but the point is simple for his disciples, and it's held regardless of which uh, interpretation you have, which is that there are a lot of towns the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, so you need to have a sense of urgency on this mission. You need to keep going. Now today, all the towns in Israel may have been brought the gospel, but there are still people in the world who are unreached. Joshua Project uh, posts these statistics. You can go to the website joshuaproject.com, which I encourage you to do. Here's some numbers for you. In the world right now, there are 17,281 people groups. Of those 17,281, 7,246 of those people groups are unreached. The population of our world right now is roughly 8 billion people, give or take a million probably. The population of unreached people groups is 3.4 billion people. The percentage of people who are unreached in the world right now are 42.4%. Mercy House, we should be compelled to go and evangelize because we're Christians and we're commanded to do so. But we should also be compelled to go when we hear and see numbers like this. 42.4% of the world has, quote, this is how they define unreached, has no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this group without outside assistance. That's 3.4 billion people who do not have access to the gospel, who are lost in their sin, who are destined for eternal hell. They are enslaved and harassed and helpless under the grip of Satan. They are sheep without a shepherd. So Christian, have compassion, have mercy, get fired up over this. Pray for more laborers to the Lord of the harvest and then be like the disciples who are answering their own prayers and go. I exhort you to pay the cost. Pay the cost with your reputation. Pay the cost with your time, with your dollars. Pay the cost with your heart. Pay the cost with your lives. If you are a Christian, you have received without paying, and so go and give the gospel without pay. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of his house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So our forefathers and the missionaries all around the world before us did not pay the cost so that we do not have to. Jesus is saying, you are not above this persecution. If you want to share my joy, if you want to share in my glory, you must share in my sufferings as well. And if they call me, me, the, the king of creation, the upholder of the universe, the prince of peace, if they call me a demon... What do you think they're going to say about you? 
Christians, faithful, obedient Christians who preach the whole gospel with urgency will experience persecution. It might not be martyrdom. We might not even experience physical attack for it, but we can't be naive. As Christians, we have aligned ourselves against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We are, after all, sheep in the midst of wolves. But when we are maligned, when we are slandered and hurt, when we're rejected or persecuted for carrying the message of salvation, this is ultimately good news. This is ultimately good news for you. Look at how the disciples who endured persecution thought about that persecution that they endured. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Chapter 5 of Acts, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council where, this is me speaking, not the word of God, where they were prophesied to give an account and they were beaten over that testimony. So that's the council that they're leaving. When they, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease doing what? The mission teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. When we suffer for Christ, we experience the beautiful encouragement that Jesus snuck into the end of verse 25 there. Did you catch it? We're part of the household of God. In other words, we are in God's family. Mercy House, we should be compelled to preach the gospel to those around us because we're Christians who are commanded to do it by our God, because there are billions of people who need their souls saved, and because it's how we participate in the family of God. Jesus was a carpenter, but that was his side hustle. The actual family business is making disciples, and that's what we've been called into. Mercy House, this is our mission. This is each of our responsibilities. It's our spiritual calling. It is our holy profession. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we take communion, we remember Jesus' death. We remember the cost that he ultimately paid in order to preach the gospel to us. We remember that he was delivered up. He was betrayed by a beloved brother to be put to death. We remember that he was maligned, that he was slandered, that he was ostracized, that he was ridiculed, that he was abused, that he was persecuted. And Jesus was the true sheep in the midst of wolves, Take communion. We remember all of that, but we also participate in it with him. We align ourselves with him together as brothers and sisters of one household of whom he is the head, and we share this meal with one another and with him. And we give thanks because even though we are a flock of defenseless sheep in the midst of ravenous wolves here in Amherst, Massachusetts, we have a great shepherd who will be with us always until the end of the age. Let's pray. 
Father, we are grateful for your heart of evangelism, that you, are, that you have a heart for all people of all nations. God, the majority of people are in this room right now because of that mission which you have called all of us to. God, we confess that evangelism and sharing our faith is hard. And God, you know that it's hard. You foretold that it would be hard, that it would be like being sheep in the midst of wolves. Lord, I pray that you would embolden us with your word today. God, I pray that the people of this church would have your word stored up in their hearts, God, that they would believe and trust your promises. Lord, that we would leverage our relationships, our influence, our resources, our time, and our energy in order to communicate the gospel, God, to preach it, Lord, that we wouldn't be scared. And Lord, when we are scared, when we are nervous, when we are putting ourselves out on a limb, when we feel vulnerable, Lord, help us to remember your promises here, that you will never leave us or forsake us, God. Lord, thank you for those before us who were obedient to this, enough to share the gospel with us. Help us to take up the baton and live out our calling as makers of disciples, Lord. Father, we need your help to do this. We thank you that you have transformed our hearts to be able to walk in your ways. So help us, Lord, to walk in your way, the way of the disciple maker, the way of the evangelist, Lord. Lord, help those in this church family who are particularly gifted in evangelism to encourage and admonish those around them who are not doing this, God. We thank you that you have given them and their gifts to this church. Help those gifts be used to spur on others to share the gospel. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.